Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. The paradigm of how business is conducted is sometimes changed when methods in other areas of life are employed in business. Sharing knowledge, creating a new network, and being compassionate are a few of the ideas that we'll discuss this week on Radio Curious. Our guest is Tim Sanders, the author of a new book called Love is the Killer App, How to Win Business and Influence Friends. Tim Sanders is the Chief Solutions Officer at Yahoo.com. Knowledge, Network, and Compassion is the theme of his book and the basis for what he believes will bring success in business. I spoke with Tim Sanders from his office in California's Silicon Valley and asked him to begin by describing what the app, in the title of his book, Love is the Killer App, means. The business application. I always remember that technology is just a business process. High technology would be computers, right? So a killer app is something I've heard talked about even before the Internet. A killer application, for example, you've heard of the phrase category killers? Yeah. So, for example, Home Depot and the idea of a big box and everyday low prices was a killer app or a killer application to the local hardware store. It was a new way of doing things that became insanely popular and was eventually very difficult to compete with. It became the new standard. In the Internet world, email was a killer app for the idea of a handwritten note. So that's an idea of a new thing that became huge, and currently over 9 out of 10 of all notes written between people are are currently electronic. And your book, uh, Love is a Killer App. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that. Well, people come up to me all the time at conferences where I speak, and they always want to know what's the next big thing. But on a personal level, they're searching for ways they'll continue to add value during this rapid period of change. So they're all looking for that, that killer application that's going to propel them forward. When I got out of college, it was greed, you know, ruthlessness, uh, the ability to d- execute deals fast, you know, first mover advantage, predatory marketing. Those were all thought to be magic bullets or killer applications. I'm saying that in 2002, the idea of being compassionate and sharing with your knowledge and your network, those are the things that are the killer application that will drive your career to great heights, and you'll be happy to. Let's start with knowledge. Mm-hmm. You're going to share your knowledge. Tell us about that. And In other words, what I want to know is, if you're going to share your knowledge, are you giving away trade secrets? Mm. So um, when I talk about sharing knowledge, I think about it like a four-step process. I think, first of all, about aggregating knowledge. Think about it like stockpiling. And then I encode it. That's when I read it and consume it and understand it. And then processing is the third step. That's how I begin to think about it and and put it in the context of my business life. And then application is the fourth thing. That's when you talk to people about it. That's when you hand it off to people. That's when you give it to them as a gift of some sort. I'm not talking about trade secrets. All the knowledge I talk about in the book is the kind of stuff that you could go get at the library or the bookstore. What it's really all about is your time, and your development of a sincere interest in somebody else as you read. Give us some examples. Um, here, here's one example. I um, uh, love to work with my folks at Compaq. I remember that, gosh, I get it was about 18 months ago, the first time Gary Elliott ever flew to Sunnyvale, California, uh, for a meeting with Yahoo. He's one of the muckety-mucks there at Compaq in marketing. And I didn't want him just to go through one of those normal sales presentations like these execs always do in dealing with the high-tech company. 
So I went out and I did some research on his number one competitor at the time, who was Hewlett-Packard, amusingly enough. And as I did some research, I began to hear HP talk about this idea of customer activity spaces, and specifically this phrase of customer capitalism. Now, that's a search term now for me. So when I trot off to the bookstore, I'm looking for search terms on behalf of Gary Elliott. I'm doing this a week before he ever comes out here, so I can add value when we have our meeting. Well, lo and behold, I find the book, Customer Capitalism. It's a real book. It's called Customer Capitalism. I find it on the shelf. I buy it. It's clearly HP's playbook for the next few years on how they're going to attack companies like Compaq. And so when I meet with Gary the following week, I have read this book. I have processed this book. I've got an extra copy as a gift for him. I added tremendous value in our business meeting and created rapport and respect between the two of us around public domain knowledge that I bothered to take the time to read on his behalf. That's an example. So anything that uh, someone else has thought up and written out uh, that you've learned, you'll share, but you're less inclined to share your own internal thoughts. Well, those are tangibles. You know, the book is all about the idea of sensibly sharing your intangibles to help other people become successful and grow. So an intangible would be stuff that's out there that's not secret, stuff that's public, whether it's online research, book research, whatever. Uh, stuff that's behind the firewall, company secrets, trade secrets, those are tangibles. They have intellectual property value. It's like me giving a customer money you know, off the, you know, uh, out of the back door, free product. Um, I don't believe in those things. I believe that if you give those things away, they want scale. But the idea that I would always prepare to be a better coworker or to be better to my customer by reading about things that interest them and are important to them, that scales over time, and there's no risk except my time. And the older you are, the more you've collected in your mind. I think that's true. I mean, I think that you've collected more. However, I would say that I have met many business people that have done business for decades, and they are, they are victims of what I call personal atrophy. And what that means is that they stopped reading books and valuable stuff 10 years ago. And the best they can do now is to scan through the Wall Street Journal and, and rely on their instinct. I think they are devastated by change. So I believe that no matter how young or old you are, it really is a question of how much work you continue to put into it and how healthy your media diet is. I think many people have a very unhealthy media diet. I advocate that 80% of your media diet should be well-written books, and the other 20% would be the other media that you consume. You'll be a lot more lucid, and you'll be a lot more portable about the things you learn, especially regarding change. When you talk about people being uh, reluctant to change, we're all creatures of habit. Mm-hmm. How do you urge someone to get out of the mold that they're in and uh, welcome and enhance and embrace change? Well, in this case, the change I'm talking about is the idea that you stockpile knowledge to give it away to create the beginning of a great business relationship. And the change that I'm talking about is reading books again, you know, becoming a voracious reader. And sometimes you can implement that in piece or in part, but really where it's going to accelerate or where it did for me is the first time you sit down in a business meeting or the first time that you sit down with one of your colleagues or your suppliers and you have that great conversation that you've prepared for and you give them the book as a gift and you see that you've created a differentiated position with them and they respect you, it starts to get interesting. And as you do it more and more, it starts to become one of the most entertaining things you do with your spare time. So in that case, change takes care of itself based on results. Talk about how it's interesting and entertaining for you. Well, um, business meetings are comprised of social currency, right? You tell jokes, you talk about the weather, you show PowerPoint presentations. Much of business is uninteresting. If I've taken the time, like I did with Gary, 
to fully prepare on something that he doesn't know in depth and apply it specifically to a meeting, and he gets completely excited and unlocks his imagination. It's the most interesting meeting he's had in years. That's why I got up this morning. That's the thing that motivates me in getting ready for doing businesses, creating those type of results. It's just like selling something. If you're a salesperson and you've had a really bad day, just go sell something. When the customer says yes and you have an order, it is the most interesting part of your entire day. I think the reason that we don't read is because we don't apply it enough in our business life. So it's hard to struggle through books like The Kind Philip Kotler Writes or even something else that's more droll. So how about networking? So networking is sort of like the second phase of the relationship. The the way to think about it is that I I look at my business relationships like a pyramid, meaning that the foundation of the pyramid is all about knowledge sharing. It's how I begin my relationship. And then once you and I have rapport together, we have a sense of trust, then I begin to share my network with you. And I begin to try to put you together with people in my network to help make you more successful. And when I do that, I'm not going to have expectations because true networking is done because people should meet so they can be successful, not so I play intermediary or middleman and get my cut of the action. So what do you mean by true networking? What is that? Well, to me, true networking is sharing my relationships with your relationships to promote your growth. Brokerage is where I sell you access to my network or intermediate access to my network to help me grow through your growth. One is selfless, the other is selfish. Tim, tell us more about uh, selfish versus selfishness. If I'm selfless, if I network, now remember, I advocate the idea of only intelligently networking people, people that should meet, people that are probably going to resonate, that type of thing. But if I'm selfless about it, that means that when I put you two together, I'm going to disappear. I really don't want anything out of it. I will never remind you of it. I will never collect on it. I will never have expectations that you compensate me. That's selfless. It's sort of like the story of a guy, you may have heard this, Uh, Elmer Letterman. Have you heard about Elmer? Tell us. Okay. Elmer Letterman was an insurance salesperson in the 20s, and he had a really weird way of doing business. What he would do is um, every Friday he would um, get a table for four at the Four Seasons in Manhattan, and then he'd prospect all week to put people in those chairs that should meet. And he would literally orchestrate a networking lunch putting together total strangers that, by his estimations, should meet and should do business because it'd make them more successful. Now, at this lunch, Elmer did not sell insurance as a rule. If you asked him, he'd say, you'd have to call my partner because that's not why we're here. We're here because you should meet that person. That's selfless. He didn't expect anything. The punchline is he became a multimillionaire, top salesperson in his market. And the reason why is because you multiply all those Fridays by all those foursomes, and now you have hundreds of business people Who wouldn't buy insurance from anybody else but him? Because Carnegie always said that, and I'm sure you've heard this phrase, Carnegie said that you get more done in two two months developing a sincere interest in two people than you could ever hope to accomplish in two years trying to get two people interested in you. And Elmer lived that. And one of the reasons he became successful is he gave people surprise and delight. If I were the opposite of that and I was selfish and I was a broker, then it's sort of like, we know this up in the Valley, some of those people that says, I'll introduce you to a venture capitalist as a startup, but I get a piece of the action. I get stock options. That's really not networking. That's brokering. These people that said, I'll lease you an office, but you're going to give me 10,000 shares of the company. Those people don't produce loyalty. Everybody knows they're getting paid for it. There is no surprise or delight. The Valley, as well as many, you know, the country is littered with stories of people who wanted to play middleman on opportunity. They're resented, and I think they're highly underpaid. 
Then your third section is compassion, handling the knowledge and using your network with compassion. Absolutely. So, so think about that pyramid again, right? So the foundation's knowledge. That's how you became a respectful of who I was as a person. Think about network as the middle of that pyramid. So we got involved now at a personal level. Instead of just sharing book tips, I'm now introducing you to people in my network. The peak of that pyramid is compassion, meaning that when I have your respect and you and I are involved, then I can open my heart, drop my guard, treat you as a human being, and become very forgiving and very understanding and very involved with you on a very, very personal level. That's something we all aspire to in business. And I think some of the great business leaders, when they talk about their success, they really tell you stories of compassion. It's something I strive to, and it's a question of how to balance that against business acumen. Where do you find that balance to be? I think it's all about permission. I think that you find that balance by seeking and responding to people's permission they give you. And the more they respect you and the more involvement they have in you, the more permission they give you over the course of time. But I think that's the key. What kind of examples can you give us to explain permission as you, as you describe it now? Sure. Uh, actually, I'd love to give you Seth Godin. You remember him, the Yahoo wrote Permission Marketing? He always tells a story. Uh, that if you walked into a, you know, like a good-looking guy, and you go into a bar and you've got a huge wedding ring, just a huge rock, and you walk up to every woman and you said, will you marry me? They were like, oh, recoil in horror and say no. Zero, you'll strike out. But he says if you put the ring in your pocket and you go in and you ask all the women very politely if you can buy them a drink, eventually one of them is going to give you permission, and then over time you may develop a relationship that leads to marriage. So in the compassionate world, what I've learned is that in guys like Gary, After I've had two or three meetings and we've gone from knowledge sharing now to networking, I can begin to sincerely sense and respond to the kinds of permission he gives me to get close to him, how much we can really talk about our family lives, little silly things, whether we hug when we first see each other, whether we really participate in each other's dreams beyond work. Those types of things all come over time, but you can just tell from the non-visuals and the visuals that you get from people what permission they're giving you, and you can build on that over time. And we aspire to do that. Some guys like Herb Kelleher at Southwest Airlines can kiss their people square on the lips, having aspired to that. Or in another example, um, John Madden can say, I love you to Pat Summerall as he says goodbye to him after 20 years of being together. People all manage to find their place and find the appropriateness. I just think we have to do better. This week on Radio Curious, we're talking with Tim Sanders, the author of a new book called Love is the Killer App. How to Win Business and Influence Friends. This is Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. We'll be right back after a short break with some old friends, the Beatles. Be you in time. Be easy. 
This week on Radio Curious, we're talking with Tim Sanders, the author of a new book called Love is the Killer App, How to Win Business and Influence Friends. This is Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Tim, what rung the bell for you in your life to bring this together? Um, There were a couple of things. The first thing I noticed was something that a boss of mine, Mark Cuban, said at the time. He had a motto for one of his companies. It was called Make Love, Not War. And I would see that guy answer customer complaints at 2 in the morning. He was on every possible mailing list, every possible complaint list the company had at Broadcast.com. And when I saw his passionate commitment to the customer, in fact, that he cared so much about the customer as a person, I began to understand that nice, smart people succeed, and that if you're bad to your customers, that explains why you're going to lose your business. And then on a really personal level, just a few months later, I realized that in my client, Victoria's Secret where we had worked and worked and worked to produce an event that much of the world thought failed, but in fact the client intensely had uh, a liking for me and a loyalty to me uh, based on the way that we were acting along the lines of this pyramid, and I realized everything was working in my life, that I had found something that was very special about how to grow relationships like I had with Ken Weil at Victoria's Secret, and that's when, I be- that's when I first drew the pyramid down on a piece of paper and began to write this book. When you were writing this book, um, what kinds of things in your personal background, in your childhood, uh, that your parents told you came to the forefront? A lot of it, actually. I mean, uh, I had been raised in a pretty religious environment growing up as a Baptist. And on the knowledge front, I'd always remembered how my mom would always buy books for struggling couples, dealing with everything from divorce to money problems, even though she was in her 50s. Uh, and certainly not, you know, going to get divorced or going to have money problems. And she would copiously outline them. She would use them as gift currency, and she'd spend so much time, and they loved her so much and respected her. I was able to recall that as I was writing the book when I thought about this idea of knowledge sharing. I was also just raised to believe 
uh, to treat people like human beings. And I was always a bit off-put by corporate culture in the late 80s and early 90s that seemed to tell you to leave your personality and leave your personhood at the door. I thought, heck, I spend more time at work than I do at home with my spouse. It never made sense to me. Yet now you uh, live in the center of corporate culture. Cubicle world, right? Yeah. I do, but different cultures have different uh, manifestations. I mean, certainly a person who works at Southwest Airlines is having a completely different experience with corporate culture as a person who works at American Airlines. It's not even close. It's not even the same planet. Tell us the difference as you see it. Well, the difference is, is that at Southwest Airlines, they love their people like family. They have a corporate culture that's more of an ecosystem. You are hired at Southwest Airlines for being nice first and smart and qualified second. The quickest way to get kicked out of Southwest Airlines is to violate that culture by being rude to a customer or a colleague or a supplier. That's part of who they are. That helps them make decisions every single day. Other companies like American are more organized around silos. They hire people based on being qualified and smart. It's really a focus on the career plan, and it really results in the types of attitudes you see at the airport. Uh, just the other day when I was checking in for a flight, a young lady behind the ticket counter, a Southwest a agent, told me she's so happy when she comes to work, she wonders why they pay her. Now, this is a person who works at an airline, one of the most stressful places in the world. If you remember, after September 11th, their employees met privately to offer the company personal pay cuts. And as a result, that type of mentality made them the only airline that didn't have layoffs after September 11th, the only, and they're hiring right now, as a matter of fact. It's just a different corporate culture. Tim, what kind of reaction are you getting from this book now that it's been out for a while? Well, um, very interesting. I've been getting uh, hundreds of emails a week, uh, several thousand so far. And most of the, all the people that have been emailing me say the same thing. They say that I've put into words the way that they live. Many of them tell me stories about how they've been a sharer of one or all three of these things we're talking about, knowledge, network, and compassion, about how their friends used to make fun of them. They almost made it a secret that they did business this way, yet all of them said the same thing. I'm happy, I'm successful, and I'm coming out. I actually got one story, which is worth repeating, of Barton Protective Services, a security guard company in Atlanta, where the CEO made one of the corporate values love. Do you care about me as a person? It started in 1995. And he replicated that Southwest Airlines culture throughout Barton Protective. So as a result, it's one of the happiest security guard companies in America. Fortune 100 said best company to work for three years in a row. They made that 100 list. They're the only security company ever on the list. They're making a real solid profit. They're keeping more of their customers and their competitors, and they had the lowest turnover of any security guard company. I'm getting hundreds of these stories by email of other people saying, this is the way we are, and we're not going to be ashamed of it anymore. Tim, how old are you? Forty. Where do you see yourself going um, in the next ten years? Well, what are at, some of your plans? Well, my plans are to work at Yahoo for the, for the foreseeable future. Uh, we, we're going to prevail. We're not just going to survive and help the company thrive and uh, just be a part of this community here in the Valley. I really don't have plans after working at Yahoo that I know of. For people who don't live in the Valley, you're referring to the Silicon Valley in the yes. San Jose, California area. Yes, the area where I live. That's right. I plan maybe to get more active in the community. But first and foremost, coming back to work for my Yahoos, and we're going to prevail. It sounds like the work you do, you do for fun. Uh, but is there another part of your life that's not related to work? Well, the book stuff, right? I mean, I took 18 or 19 vacation days to go do this Winter of Love tour. I've already done 10 cities on the tour. 
Uh, and so the entire book was written in my spare time and on weekends and promoted on my, my vacation. So I consider that my non-work-related uh, thing that I do, something very exciting for me. It makes my mama proud and my kid proud at the same time, which is hard to ever pull off. I suppose in the future I get to go back to playing around music in my house with my wife. Tim, one of the things that uh, you write about in your book is a way to express frustration or angst when someone is late with a job that you're expecting or material that you're expecting. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I believe in the compassion section is that if you practice compassion with your coworkers and the people that work for you, you'll learn to be more forgiving and you'll learn to understand the context of things. So when somebody turns in something late to me, instead of the word hate, I substitute the word love, sort of like what Leo Biscali would have told you to do decades ago. So instead of saying, I hate it when you turn this in 45 minutes late, get out of my office. Instead, I say, I love it when you turn it in earlier, and I love it even more when you call me on your cell phone to tell me that you're on the way, and it'll be a few minutes late. It sounds like a small point. But I have actually wrote that story in the book because four kids at an ad agency had slaved away four nights without sleep to be 45 minutes late to a meeting because of a jackknife truck and a dead cell phone, only to be screamed at by their boss and used by hateful language. They, in fact, quit that ad agency. They never look back, and they're working for a much nicer company. And it really makes me think about something the Dalai Lama said once. You don't have to be a god. Just stop hurting people. Well, Tim Sanders, I want to thank you for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I'd like to ask you to tell us about a book that you've read lately. Um, Okay. Well, let me see here. I just finished reading right before the tour Alvin Toffler's seminal work, The Third Wave, and I love that book. Um, It was the book that talked about the coming clash in the 21st century between the second wave mentality of scarcity and centralized information and this new third-wave generation that I think I participate in that believes in a world of abundance. It's a fabulous book. I think he's the true Nostradamus that's predicting uh, what drives conflict and disagreement in our new century. Well, Tim Sanders, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. Very good. Thank you. Tim Sanders is the author of Love is the Killer App, How to Win Business and Influence Friends. The book that Tim Sanders recommends is The Third Wave by Alvin Toffler. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.